Hi, everyone. I'm very excited as this is our very first episode at the Startup Sales Podcast. We have a very special guest today, Michael Goldenberg from Boston. Michael is going to tell us what are the three most important indicators to look for when hiring a new sales rep, and also how to onboard them quickly so that they could start selling. As you know, it's not just important to bring in the new clients, but also to keep them. Michael is going to share with us the mechanisms he has put in place at LogMeIn in order to retain customers. And maybe the biggest question of all, should salespeople be worried about AI taking their jobs? It's going to be a great episode, and I hope you learn a lot. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Adam. It's uh, my pleasure to join today. Looking forward to the discussion. So why don't we start with uh, a little a brief explanation of your current company, Mineral Tree. Yeah, absolutely. So Mineral Tree uh, focuses on providing AP automation for the middle market, so accounts payable automation for the middle market. And our slogan is, so you can grow AP how it should be. And that's mainly because, uh, candidly, uh, accounts payable isn't necessarily the first priority for most businesses, um, but oftentimes it can hold them back from growing those businesses because uh, it's just manual, tedious uh, parts of the process they don't really like to do. Um, so we help people focus on the things they really care about. Uh, and really, you know, when you think about accounts payable and accounting in general at this point, uh, the feeling most people have is that it should be better. It should be less paper-based. It should be easier. Uh, and so that's where we help them get to where, you know, in their mind, they know it really should be. Yeah, I understand. Is this a SaaS platform or is this a uh, on-prem? Yeah, it's a SaaS-based platform uh, that actually adds to the accounting system they're typically running, whether that be a NetSuite, Intact, uh, Microsoft Dynamics, QuickBooks, uh, and we continue to build out many others. All right, and, and you have some things, uh, some different items on your on your resume uh, before Mineral Tree, but let's start kind of more even earlier at Log Me In. Can you tell me a little bit about your journey there? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you know, when you look at uh, my particular experience at Log Me In, you know, I think the thing that kind of sums it up in general, or, or I like to think of in my own mind, of course. Um, is taking initiative to then have the opportunity to grow. And what I mean by that is, and this is something I try and uh, express to all my reps as they're talking about their own growth, is um, do the role and then ask for the title. And so throughout my career at uh, LogMeIn, I was trying to figure out ways, uh, whether that was uh, creating a customer experience analyst role. You know, I started to already do some of that work before I actually asked for that position. Uh, before I was a manager and then even into a director role, um, I was often taking on some of those responsibilities before then asking for those positions where it was more of an inevitable 
uh, progression versus uh, give me the title and then I'll prove myself. I always felt as though, and I try, again, try to get this across to all my reps is prove yourself, then ask for the title. And so I was very fortunate to have a lot of great mentors uh, and leaders that I worked with that uh, logged me in that allowed me to really uh, take on that di- additional responsibility, uh, but then also uh, rewarded me for that uh, additional effort and ambition that I was you know, able to show there. Great. I, I think that's one of the biggest things that, that I also am looking for when I'm looking at for sales reps is, is people that are going to take that initiative and, and push themselves first and then ask for permission. You talked about that you started, uh, you started to take the initiative in creating your own position at uh, LogMeIn to analyze uh, the risk at-risk clients. Can you talk mm-hmm. more in depth about that and kind of the, the problems you found when, when starting to look into this? Yeah, so when I was doing this at LogMeIn, and this was, uh, geez, I'd have to look back probably 10 years ago now at least, um, LogMeIn had the benefits of a, a huge customer base, certainly of some of their consumer-based products and things like that. Um, and they had a huge amount of data and um, usage information and things like that. Um, but historically, there hadn't been a lot of uh, attention put towards trying to look at that different data and try and really align the patterns to figure out you know, what were some of the uh, either red flags for someone being at risk Um, But equally so, what were some of those indicators of potential growth? And what was really interesting, I mean, there was a couple specific use cases we were able to find. Uh, For instance, um, you know, we realized that uh, a huge portion of the support calls that we were getting were uh, really for something very simple. It was essentially a confusion around uh, part of the login process where, um, because uh, people were essentially seeing that they couldn't log in but didn't understand why, you know, we were able to plug, you know, quick holes there to solve those problems. And there were some other, you know, anecdotal stories like that where we were able to, you know, make small tweaks that really moved the needle quickly. Um, and that was exciting. And that was, you know, it was good to see that kind of initial uh, impact that we were able to have. But then also bigger picture, we were able to start to see some trends in terms of, for instance, um, the difference between uh, if someone early in their process, uh, early in getting set up uh, with the product, you know, if they were to use two of the key features, uh, they were drastically more likely to both add on additional licenses as well as renew. And if they were using three of the key features and, you know, there were kind of five total key features, but if they were using at least two of them uh, and even better, if they were using three, um, the numbers and the likelihood, again, of both growth and retention uh, immediately went up. The other thing is, you know, it's interesting now. And again, this is call it 10 years ago. You know, net promoter score was still, you know, relatively early um, and customer success was early too. You know, people weren't really doing as much of that or they certainly didn't really call it customer success at that time. And, you know, I think one of the key insights we had, because we had looked at it as a retention effort in a lot of ways, and it was, you know, how do we prevent people from leaving? Uh, but I think the insight we had, and, and we didn't necessarily tag it as customer success, was that, um the retention and customer success actually happened at the very beginning. Uh, you know, that first 30 days of someone using a product, they're going to establish the majority of their habits of how they use the product. And so you're winning and losing that customer at the beginning. 
you know, not at the end. And, you know, I, I'd like to think of it as kind of the analogy of if you wanted people to stay at your party, you shouldn't try to, you shouldn't try and stop them on the way out the door. You should make it a really great party. So they never want to leave to begin with. Um, and so that was, I think a, a huge key insight for us was, you know, just the importance of the beginning versus historically we had, you know, waited till somewhere between, you know, 60 to 90 days before renewal and then, you know, reached out to them to, um, you know, just ensure they were okay. And so we kind of flipped it around from there to really focus on the front end. And are you taking uh, the same kind of principles uh, with you to the newer companies that you've been with, uh, including like Mineral Tree? Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I, I think, you know, the world has changed since then also in the way people look at things. And, and you know, even if you look into things like behavioral science um, in general now, you know, people understand that it's it, people are not necessarily completely logical. Um, they are more emotional in their decisions. And so it is important to create that um, that image in their mind and to create that impression early on that it is a valuable, uh, good tool that they're using. Um, so I think a lot of companies are doing this more now, but certainly here, I mean, the amount of emphasis we put on implementation and, and just getting people off the ground and running uh, is tremendous. And, and we have a, a huge focus on that uh, in particular, even more so than the you know, retention at the end. That should be a natural uh, step at the end of a year. Um, you know, it shouldn't be a, a new negotiation. What kind of tools are you using now to kind of monitor for these, these kind of things? So um, we actually more recently rolled out uh, Churn Zero, uh, which allows us to just have better insight into our usage data, patterns, things like that, able to create different uh, tracks and things like that in terms of different customers and ensure they're um, being successful throughout the life. In implementation in particular, it's a very hands-on process. Each uh, customer's assigned a, a product or I should say a project manager um, who walks them through that. And we're using a series of tools, uh, you know, Salesforce uh, and some add-on functionality there around the project management stuff, uh, as well as even some simple things like uh, Google Docs to uh, track and ensure everyone's working together. And, um, you know, well, to some extent, the sales rep's job is done when they sign the contract uh, and come on with us. Uh, a sales rep is not going to get uh, compensated on a deal we don't get implemented. So uh, that alignment is critical. But I think a big part of it too is, and this is true, I think, in general for customer experience right now is people get super annoyed by telling one person something, then having to go to the other person and tell them the same story over and over again. Uh, it creates a terrible experience. So I think a big part of what we try and do is the the simple things is the the blocking and tackling in terms of just ensuring that we uh, properly pass the information from the sales rep uh, to that implement implementation person. So it's a natural handoff progression. It's not uh, like they feel like they're starting from scratch with a new person. Uh, and that's been you know the more we've focused on that, uh, we've seen you know a great impact in terms of people just getting off to a better start. Uh, implementation appreciates it as well because it's just less of a scenario of them having to look like an idiot asking really basic questions that you know someone already spent a bunch of time trying to really emphasize. Uh, so uh, I think those are some of the key things we try and focus on here. 
is that kind of like a manual process, the, the handover? Or is there like a form that you kind of fill out and, and pass it along to the, the onboarding? Yeah, so we actually, I mean, there's a whole process that takes place in terms of when they close the deal is one, it kicks off an email to the implementation team uh, with all the details. Uh, then there is a warm introduction email that the account executive is uh, sending to the end client that both copies the end client and the implementation specialist. And it lays out um, a couple clear first steps that they need to take. Uh, as well as providing a, a more detailed overview of the entire process. Uh, we deal with accountants primarily who we're selling into, so they are detail-oriented. So uh, they really want to see every little step that's going to take place uh, in the process to give that, them that comfort as they move forward. Let's, let's take a, a sidestep here. Sure. When you're onboarding new sales, uh, new sales executives to your team, yeah. What kind of uh, process do you have? Yeah, so it's a it's a pretty in-depth process in terms of it includes a combination of some really in-depth learning, um, you know, in terms of uh, learning about the culture, the product, the process, uh, our different sales methodologies, things like that, and kind of more classroom type training to start with. Uh, then from there, we roll into... Um, them doing more shadowing and things like that, you know, to initially get off the ground. Um, it, it depends. So obviously for our business development role, uh, it's a little bit faster in terms of what they need to know to get off the ground and up to speed. Um, and for our account executives, it is, you know, significantly more in depth because they do their own demos and things like that. So we spend a lot more time uh, really doing in-depth product training uh, for those people that being said, we also really try and promote a promote from within culture. Uh, so a lot of times our account executives are BDRs who have been promoted. And so they really understand a lot of the fundamentals of what we do and how it works. It's, it's really a matter of getting them up to speed on sales process. Um, mm -hmm. but in general, it's a, you know, we've got a, I don't know, it's a, probably up to a, about 150 page uh, sales playbook that they're expected to go into in great detail and just a personal philosophy and strategy uh, that we try and implore is um, uh, kind of a, a go away and learn and come back and talk kind of approach. So, you know, oftentimes, uh, sometimes based on time restrictions, things like that, you know, I don't want to sit there and have to lecture each individual person as they come on. What I like to do is give them uh, break it into buckets of uh, certain um resources and things for them to study and to learn. And then we come back and review them and answer questions. So there's not a bunch of time me reading them things that they can read on their own. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's much more conversational around which parts make sense, which parts don't, and, you know, providing additional clarity. And it seems to, you know, be a really effective use uh, of everyone's time. Do you do a lot of role playing? Absolutely. Yeah, you've got to, <laughs> you know, I can only, yeah, I can only talk to someone about how to swing a bat so much at a certain point, they got to just start taking some swings. Uh, <laughs> and ideally, they're not swings in an actual game to start, you know, they're on the practice field first. But yeah, role playing is huge. And it's funny, I like to, you know, somewhat bust people's chops and uh, somewhat play the devil's advocate sometimes, um, you know, be a little bit tough on them. But the funny thing is, by the time they start to actually get on the phones and, and talking to people, they realize that I wasn't actually being that tough and that <laughs> that's actually just the reality of sales. 
Yeah. So, so do you give them uh, a lot of leeway once they're hit the phone or how long a leash are you giving? So it's a combination. I mean, I think we've got a, a really good environment in terms of uh, the other team members typically helping out a lot. Uh, so, you know, I do lean on my team as well to help, you know, if anyone hears something that someone's saying that isn't correct, um, you know, they should uh, be, you know, making that correction for someone. It's a very open, collaborative environment in that respect. And, you know, it's important for, especially when you're new, to be very open to that feedback, things like that. But uh, we're listening to recorded calls, things like that. Um, so it, it's something where we're trying to correct on the fly as we go, but also, you know, we'll take time. So we do role plays, but then, uh, you know, because the training never stops and, and we do weekly one-on-ones. Uh, and often in those one-on-ones, we'll review uh, some of the different calls and, you know, which ones went well, which ones didn't. Sometimes I'll let them pick. Sometimes I'll pick just to make sure there's no funny ones out there. Um, but, you know, it's a balance in terms of, you know, I'm a strong believer in you can't um, expect people to do things that you don't make extremely clear for them. So we do give a lot of coaching and guidance and, and help. Uh, in terms of the pitch and and all those things and what to say. But alternatively, when you think about motivating people, you know, nobody wants to be a robot reading a script. Certainly, I don't think in this day and age, certainly not with, you know, some of the younger generations. So I really do like to encourage their own autonomy to try and test things. And and it's very much a meritocracy environment where, um, you know, I always say whatever works is what we do. I don't care if it comes from me. I don't care if it comes from the guy scrubbing the toilets. Uh, if it works, we will do it. And so I, I do try and encourage that autonomy. And sometimes the best ideas come from the newer people who, you know, haven't been uh, as jaded or, or, you know, had as many experiences. And, you know, they just try something that no one else had, had tried before. So it's a balance of that guidance, um, but also, um you know, giving people enough autonomy that they feel like they can put their own spin on it, their own creativity. I think as much as anything, you try and teach people not what to do, but why to do it. And then they can make their own judgments from there much better than if they're, if you're just giving them orders to follow, because then as soon as they have to go off script, they won't really understand how to make those decisions. I think that's a very important part is, uh, having them understand why something is in a particular way so that uh, they they understand it, not just, as you said before, you don't want a robot. Yep, absolutely. Although those are coming too, but that's a, a whole other topic for another day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I just saw the uh, release of Google's new voice and uh, they, it, could order a, it could order a place at a restaurant for you and actually speak to a human. Yeah. And, you know, again, not to go too off topic, but, you know, I think for every salesperson today, you need to really, you know, look deep inside yourself and think, um, you know, this is coming. This is, you know, this, uh, you know, AI bots, uh, it is coming. Where are you going to add value? What are you going to still be able to bring to the table? Because the reality is, You know, the bot might be better at making sure it asks all the right questions every single time. You know, where are you really going to be able to add the value? And and I think even without that competition coming in, you know, it still remains the case today, which is where I think salespeople still add the most value is, you know, providing context and 
um, being able to, you know, put things into a, a way and frame things in a way and be able to read a person uh, in a certain way um, that they're able to really address the things that matter the most to them versus kind of just, again, reading off a script. But yeah, matter the most to the prospect, not to the salesperson. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So back on topic, um, how do you? What are some of the early signs uh, that you found when a person's not going to work out for the company? You know, it's interesting. It's uh, it's always hard. You know, you can interview, you can check references, you can do back channel references, you can do many things to try and uh, you know, you can do different psychological tests. Uh, there's a lot of resources and ways to ensure that you're going to get the people that you were hoped to get. Um, but obviously that is not always the case. Um, you know, I think it's one of those things, this goes to my philosophy in general, uh, when it comes to, uh, both hiring, firing, promoting, um, you know, ultimately, you know, what I'm looking for is progression. Are the people, you know, early on, you tend to see either people are kind of picking it up and they're getting it and, you know, they keep adding to their, to their arsenal of tools and you explain something and they, you know, they absorb it and they turn around and they do it differently. And even the most junior person you hire, um, you know, as long as they're continuing to make the adjustments, they probably have more adjustments to make, but you know, as long as they continue to make the adjustments, you know, they're going to be okay. And they're, they'll be heading in the right direction and they're progressing and they're continuously getting better. Um, where you start to get alarmed and concerned and uh, is when, you know, very early on, often you're able to see that, you know, you're having to review the same things, you know, week in and week out and the adjustments aren't exactly being made and there's no real good reason why they're not being made. It's a, oh yeah, you know, I got to really remember to do that kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of the biggest indicator to me is like, are we talking about the same things multiple times? Uh, or is it, you know, we kind of knock down one and move on to the next thing. Uh, so I'd say that's kind of one of the big indicators for me personally. But, you know, the other thing is this, you know, um, you know, and this is kind of the, on the softer side of things, which is, you know, there's some element, and this is a little less tangible, but, you know, how much does it seem like the person cares? Uh, that's a big part of it also, right? I mean, you see, there's just some people, they come in and you can tell from early on, they're, um, for whatever reason, as much as you try and avoid it, you know, in hiring, it seems like, you know, they're they're content to kind of slide into the middle um, versus someone who comes in and you can tell they're just trying to push even from day one to be number one. Uh, that's another kind of, you know, red flag. You see someone come in and, and get complacent very quickly. Um, those, those are ones that definitely make me nervous. <laughs> I, I understand very much. So, so I think what you were, the first part of what you were saying is coachability. I think that was, uh, that's the biggest uh, thing for you is that they're coachable. Yeah, and I don't remember where I stole this from, uh, some book, but I really, it, it really resonated with me, which is, you know, trying to find people that are hungry, humble, and smart. You know, that hunger thing, unfortunately, is the hardest to find. Everyone in the interview says they're going to be the hardest working person, um, but needless to say, they're not all. 
Um, you know, that's, you know, absolutely critical. Everything else you can almost figure out, but that you, you know, you can't teach that. And it's so hard to find, you know, humble, you know, them being open and coachable and, and not getting defensive, things like that. You know, that's a big part of it. But, you know, part is what I was saying, and I don't know, maybe I'm wrong in calling it being smart, but is the people who are able to uh, self-identify issues or able to look into, you know, internally and say, you know, here are the things or identify, uh, be self-aware enough to identify the things that they are doing uh, to be able to fix them. Um, that's a big part of it as well. Is someone who's not just going to wait around uh, for me to tell them, you know, hey, that's not working, but for them to be able to come to me and say, hey, you know, I feel like this part isn't working. Can you help me with that? Um, that's a that's a huge piece of it. You know, maybe that's a little bit coachability. You know, to me, it's a little bit of, uh, you know, self-awareness and, and intelligence. Yeah. How do you find that in an interview? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> You know, and it's funny. I've tried every the million dollar question. I, I've, I've read every article there is about you know hiring questions and things like that. Um, you know, I, I try and ask for more specific examples of anything that someone says. Is so an example, right? Uh, everyone will say, "I'm going to be the hardest working guy. Just hire me." You know, I'll, I'll be staying. I'll come in earlier and leave later than everyone. Um, so I just try and have them focus on specific examples of things. And it's funny how quickly, uh, you know, when you ask someone, you know, give me a, give me a, a real world example of where you've, um, you know, actually recently been the hardest working person or give me a scenario in which that was actually the case. And it's like, well, I mean, you know, in general, I, and, and they can't really come up with it. So as much as anything, I try and, um, you know, do those types of things. You know, I have all sorts of kind of trick, not trick questions, but, you know, you ask one question, which is seemingly asking for one answer, but you're really asking it to determine something else. Um, you know, as an example, you know, one of the big things we're always talk about uh, here is accountability. Uh, and so, you know, when I'm trying to get to things like accountability, I don't ask them, hey, are you accountable? Give me an example of where you've been accountable you know, I like to ask the question of, you know, give me a scenario in which you've failed and tell me why you think that happened. And all I'm really looking to see is, are they going to take, you know, are they going to blame something else? Because, uh, you know, in sales, there's always going to be some excuse, some reason why we weren't able to get the thing done. Or, it's always the lead. The leads are bad. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the shitty customer. Um, but, you know, that's... Um, you know, or, you know, so are they going to blame something else or are they going to turn it on themselves and really be able to say, yeah, you know, maybe I didn't get the best coaching or training, but, you know, it's my fault. I should have taken more of my own time to do this. I, you know, I learned and ideally even they turn it around and explain how, you know, they from that learned lesson, they actually applied it to something else down the road. Um, so those are just a couple ways uh, I try and get to that type of stuff. Okay. So what are some of the challenges uh, in growing your sales team? Boy, there's plenty of them. Uh, you know, it, it's funny. I often feel like uh, being a, a sales leader is, you know, half uh, motivator, half psychologist. And uh, you tend to have a lot of strong personalities on any given team, especially in sales, especially for you know, dominant personalities uh, who all like to win. 
Um, so trying to balance, I think those personalities are, is probably the hardest part, uh, just in terms of getting everyone pointing in one direction, working together. Um, I think that can be the toughest part and, and it's interesting. That's something, you know, one of the things we've tried to focus on to increase that collaboration and really, uh, get everyone pointing in the right direction because the reality is this, right? Individually, you know, people can do well and do fine and, and that's great. And, and to some extent in sales, it's like, as long as you're making your money, you're not overly concerned with how other people are doing. It's not necessarily your problem. But that being said, when you think about the greater purpose of, you know, when someone's at a company of, of trying to really build something and build something great, you can't do that alone. Um, so you really do need to have, you know, that team environment. You do need to have a, a team all helping each other. Um, you know, Bill Belichick's an amazing football coach, but part of the, a huge part of the success for the Patriots has been that on-field leadership um, and that, you know, collaboration of those teams. So, you know, in order to try and build out more of that, you know, I think a big part of it is really just trying to get people to know each other a little bit better. You know, I always kind of relate the story and uh, I apologize because I don't remember the guy's name, but long story short is this gentleman, uh, an African-American gentleman whose kind of whole mission is uh, to get KKK members to, you know, leave the organization. And he, and he starts by asking, you know, why do you hate me? You don't even know me. And then often that kind of spurs the conversation of a bunch of, you know, misunderstandings or, or you know, um, stereotypes that aren't necessarily true um, that, you know, these people bring up. But the point being that, and, and this guy's had, you know, amazing success in terms of, you know, actually getting people to leave the KKK, but the way he's able to do it is they just get to know him. And so uh, it's something simple in terms of people taking the time to get to know one, uh, one another. Um, but, you know, I think that's, you know, been something we found to be extremely helpful in terms of getting everyone really on the same team, even when to some extent you've got people competing. And even in some cases you have some competing interests a little bit, um, you know, getting everyone pointing in, in the right direction, in the same direction, um, you know, that's something that is critical because, again, it's not just the individuals that matter, it's the team. So how are you doing that? How are we doing that? Uh, combination. So, um, uh, you know, we have kind of group projects that we're working on. So as an example, uh, we're building out, you know, some new email cadences, um, uh, new cadence matrix for the different types of uh, people that we're reaching out to. And so uh, the team's working on that together. It's not just me writing emails. They're kind of working together to write those emails, um, doing uh, regular bi-weekly um, uh, lunch and learns with the team where different team members will uh, present to the rest of the team. That's been a good one. Uh, doing Present on what? Uh, it varies quite a bit, the, the topics, you know, so we do it every uh, two weeks and sometimes it's, you know, more specifically, you know, for instance, uh, uh, someone's, you know, sales techniques and things like that, that they've used at previous companies that have worked well. Uh, sometimes they're um, uh, more product focused if someone's really strong in product. Uh, so the topics vary from, you know, uh, week to week. It just has to do with kind of what's top of mind for the team things that they're interested in. A lot of times, um, you know, I'll bring it back to 
teaching some of the different sales methodologies, things like that. Uh, even sometimes, you know, it'll be some sort of trend that people may be hearing, um, you know, in the market and talking about that and, and the impacts to us. Like, for instance, uh, conversational marketing slash sales and what is that and what does it mean and how are we trying to uh, use it? Uh, ABM, account-based marketing, account-based sales. Again, you know, what does that actually mean? Who, what are other people doing around this? What are we doing to, um, you know, get the most out of that strategy? So it just varies from week to week in terms of, you know, what's top of mind, you know, what people think will be the most helpful. Um, but that in conjunction with, you know, this uh, team events uh, is a big thing, obviously, you know, whether that's a, you know, anything outside of the office where people can just get to know each other on a little more personal basis uh, goes a long way. And then one of the things we've started to do more recently is uh, kind of just shorter stand-up meetings uh, towards the end of the day uh, where, you know, people can just kind of get that feedback. Hey, what's one good thing that worked today? What's one thing that didn't, you know, get a little feedback from everyone, you know, how they might approach it, um, you know, and that's been really productive as well. Michael, thanks for uh, for joining us today. I think that the biggest thing that I took away from this is to to take initiative and, and prove prove yourself uh, before taking the position or asking for for that responsibility so prove yourself first I, I think that's really important so thanks for taking the time yeah my pleasure and you know I, I would leave you with even beyond that is uh, you know one of my favorite you know sayings is you know change means opportunity I, I think for anyone, in sales, certainly in sales leadership, you should always be thinking about what are we changing? What are we addressing? You know, what are we doing to move things forward? Uh, there's zero complacency. And I think to the point you made earlier about taking initiative, it's just having that, that hunger, that drive to just never leave things uh, alone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, great. Thank you, Michael. All right. It was a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Adam. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. To contact Adam about consulting services or speaking engagements, visit StartupSalesPodcast.com or email StartupSalesPodcast at gmail.com. Great, Michael. Five questions uh, to end things off. What is your favorite sales or leadership book? Whew. Favorite sales or leadership book? There's so many good ones. Uh, I don't know if this is necessarily sales or leadership, but I'm going to say it anyway, uh, which is a book called Predictably Irrational, uh, is one by Dan Ariely that I really love. And part of it is it just talks about human psyche and, and behavioral science. And uh, I think the biggest misunderstanding people have when they go into sales is they're going to be dealing with a bunch of logical people making logical decisions. And the reality is it's anything but that. And the sooner you're able to... Um, figure out what actually drives people's decisions versus what they say is going to drive their decision, uh, the better off you'll be. I think that's a, that's a direct answer to the question. It, it is both sales and leadership, <laughs> even not being titled it. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have someone that you uh, follow uh, for sales or leadership ideas? Boy, uh, there's a lot of them. I'm a big Daniel Pink guy, big Dan Ariely guy, uh, really like the Heath brothers. Um, 
Michael Lewis is a, a great writer uh, who just uh, recently wrote a book, The Undoing Project, which is amazing. Um, and then, you know, candidly, I, I look up to some of my uh, mentors that I, I've worked with in the past uh, as well. Okay. A whole list. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Are you available 24-7 or do you have uh, strict personal time boundaries? <laughs> uh, don't tell anyone I said this, but the reality is, you know, if there's a deal to be had, if there's something important, you know, I'm available 24-7, but uh, don't go publishing that. <laughs> okay, I'll call you at three in the morning. Listen, if you're in sales, there's no time off. You know, if, if there's an opportunity to, to make money move the needle, then... You know, you got to be ready at all hours. For that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, what is your favorite tool used for sales? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I would say right now, the number one tool that I've been kind of using the most and taking the most advantage of is probably sales loft uh, in terms of our email and um you know, phone cadence and follow-ups, things like that. And part of the reason I like it so much is it actually ties in and integrates with so many of the other solutions that we're using um, and giving just more insights on who to email and when and, and pulling that all into one view is super helpful in a way that, you know, for however long I've been thinking, like, I don't understand why Salesforce doesn't just do this, but, you know, <laughs> um, you know, that's something that in general, not only that, but it works. Uh, and I should knock on wood before I say that, but you know, I've used some solutions in the past where the integration wasn't great or you, know, you had kind of a lot of just technical uh, hiccups. Uh, it's been a, a really strong product to really increase our uh, activity and our productivity. And also, you know, one of the things I really try and focus on is um, try and minimize, minimize the amount of mental energy a rep needs uh, on any given moment to think of like, who do I go to next? Who do I call next? Who do I reach out to next? Uh, and this does a great job of just, you know, bringing that next person up and uh, for them. Excellent. That's great. What one piece of advice do you have for all the founders, CEOs and sales leadership out there? Boy, uh, that's different, uh, different for each. But I think what I would say is, uh, it's important to understand where you're at in the business life cycle to set your expectations correctly, to set um, what you expect out of people and results correctly. And what I mean by that is uh, you need to have very different expectations for when you're in that product market fit um, piece uh, versus when you're in trying to get a, a repeatable sales process in front of versus, you know, when you're scaling the business. And I think the mistake people often make is they think they're in the scaling part way too early and don't realize that you need a different type of, you know, for instance, when you're in that product market fit, you need a different type of rep, you need a different type of approach, you need a different type of flexibility. Um, you're going to see a different kind of result. You can't ask, you know, for instance, when you're in that product market fit, you know, is are these conversion rates, you know, in line with the industry? Because the reality is if it's brand new, um, you're, there probably are going to be lower. The key is just to um, try and uh, uh, standardize or, or have a common definitions that you can use to then uh, gauge your growth and just ensure that you're making progress. Um, but I think like all things in life, you know, one of my favorite sayings is expectations are the building blocks of disappointment. So if you have the right expectations at those different phases and understand the right goals, I think it just leaves everyone in a better place versus unrealistic expectations and then, you know, expecting the world 
um, when you're very early on and then, you know, being disappointed and then you churn through a bunch of people for no good reason because um, you're not looking for the right things in terms of where they should be and what they should be accomplishing at that point. Absolutely. Great. Michael, thanks again for coming and uh, pleasure having you on. Yeah, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation.